Hey folks, it's Seb here. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I would just like to acknowledge that this podcast is created, recorded, and distributed on the land of the Kulin Nations, and I pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. Thanks, y'all. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, beautiful people. This is a content warning to say that this episode of Let's Talk contains brief discussions of corrective rape, sexual assault, and sexual violence, uh, specifically around the one hour and eight minute and one hour nine minute marks. Um, but yeah, just keep keep an eye out for that and please uh, stay safe. Okay, thanks, y'all. Hello everyone, welcome to Let's Talk, a podcast dedicated to providing educational content on a range of different social issues. Each fortnight I'll be joined by a special guest to discuss that that episode's issue, as well as provide handy tips for living on res. This week we're discussing what it's like to be agender, aromantic, asexual and Asian, in other words, the four A's. Um, I'm Sebastian, one of the academic RAs at Jack Moss. And joining me today is someone who embodies these four things. Lee, please feel free to introduce yourself. Everything. Thanks, Seb. Um, hello, everyone listening. My name's Lee. I'm one of the residents at Jackamos Hall. I'm also one of the RAs um, within university. I'm a fourth year medical student and also do um, a bit of stuff around student leadership in that space. But yeah, as you alluded to, um, I guess maybe I could talk a, a little bit my, about my experience with those four A's. Mm, so I guess this definitely. is... Yeah, this is, I guess, um, coming from a space of having um, uh, listened to Seb's recent uh, podcast with uh, Thomas, also from Jack Moss Hall, where he talked about his own experience with being aromantic and asexual. And I thought in, in that context, you know, um, it would be nice to talk about my own experience, some similarities, some differences, and delve into some of those issues. So I guess to, to tick those things off the list, firstly, there's the Asian part of it. Um, I'm Asian, my parents are both Chinese. I was born in China, but I came to Australia um, when I was very early, about eight months old. So that's been a part of my life at home. It's been a part of my identity, but I am also, um, I guess, uh, an Australian born Chinese, except just not quite born in Australia. So that that was easy, that that I've always been that. The the other three A's are something that, like I said, have come to, in a sense, a little bit more recently. So I am and identify as asexual. That means that I don't experience sexual attraction. I also identify as aromantic, which means that I don't um, experience romantic attraction. Um, maybe we'll talk about a little bit what that means later. But I guess that's, you know, my, I appreciate that my experience in this has been a little bit interesting. It's certainly not representative um, of everyone who identifies that way, but it's my, been my experience. Um, I've always been that way throughout primary school, middle school, high school, university. I've never experienced sexual or romantic attraction and I've never really thought that much about it. I haven't really um, discussed it any one way or other. I've never pretended not to be or I don't think given any indication um, that I wasn't. Um, but just for me, I guess it wasn't, was never a part of my life. Um, when I was in high school, I had you know, my friends, I was focused on studying, getting into university, all that, and all my other hobbies. Um, 
I guess I was vaguely aware that, you know, these were things that were going on with other people at school, but it wasn't anything that I involved myself in. So at that point, I mean, it's something that personally I've always been fairly comfortable with and I'd never used um, the terms asexual and aromantic. It just wasn't something that was part of my life. Um, but I guess recently, um, earlier this year, it sort of came up um, with a few of my friends, the terms asexual and aromantic are things that I guess I've been aware of through things like um, Monash University's uh, advocacy and education about um, LGBTQIA plus communities and things. So it was a term that's been simmering in my head and I guess earlier this year uh, was the first time that I identified using those words particularly. Um, since then, I, know, I think I'm pretty open about this. It's on my Twitter um, and I consider myself uh, out about that as I suppose I've always been, but that's, that's where I came from in those respects. And I guess given all this coronavirus, staying at home and not going outside, it sort of spurred a little bit of more thinking and mm. self-reflection about this. And I said, well, you know, we've ticked off sexual and romantic um, orientation. Um, you know, over some period of time, I got to thinking about gender as well. And this was one of the things that I, I struggled with a little bit. I mean, you know, I spent quite a long time Googling you know, what the hell is this gender thing that people keep talking about? Like I said, I've always, you know, I express myself as a man. I'm happy to be that. I'm happy to be referred to as a man, but then really reflecting and I guess um, critically engaging with the idea of gender, I just found myself rather confused. I mean, you know, your internal sense of sex and gender and your gender identity. And I kept looking for more and more uh, information about this. And while I suppose I understood it intellectually, it just wasn't something that I could really um, identify within myself as a part of um, identity and look reflecting on people in my life obviously transgender people exist and obviously most or many of them feel very strongly about their gender they have a strong sense of gender other people in my life um, I know have a very strong sense of who they are in terms of gender and their roles and what they think about themselves and just reflecting that that wasn't something that, that really um, applied to me in and up, that's, I guess, the first reason. The second thing is, I guess, a more, more social advocacy point of things. I just don't really like the idea, generally, that you should know what's in my pants to be able to refer to me with pronouns. And I guess the sort of, um, sort of solidarity and kind of uh, as a marker of that, um, in conjunction with what I feel about myself, um, I, I've taken to identifying in uh, broad terms what you might referred to as a non-binary man. So this was driven by some of my experiences and I guess some people um, in the community who I'm aware of, Rebecca Sugar, the creator of, um, uh, one of the people involved with Adventure Time, the creator of Steven Universe, who I might talk about later, she identifies as a non-binary woman. And she identified when I, you know, that was a term that was confusing to me coming into this. How can you be both non-binary and a woman? The way she described it was, well, she doesn't really have a particularly, and um, she doesn't really identify herself as, man, uh, as a man or a woman, but she's happy to be regarded as a woman. I thought, you know, that's, that's great. And I thought on reflection, that's something that I identified with. Um, so agender in a sense, yes. Non-binary man in a sense, yes. That's something that I've also um, come to put a label on in recent um, times. So I guess that's, that's where I've come from. That's where I am now. And that's me. Mm, that's an incredible intro into um, a bit about who you are. And that I feel like that opens up a lot of like doorways for what we'll 
um, come to discuss um, in this episode. Um, and it's very interesting as well, um, the perceived, I guess, incongruence of being like a non-binary man or like a non-binary woman, how that's at least, like definitely when I first came across that, like I was like, that doesn't make sense. That like clashes in my head that, but it totally like they exist in harmony and they can exist in harmony and they do. And it's like, they're just adjectives that highlight different parts of it. Like no, uh, like I'm, I'm not articulating it, but it's, it's, yeah, that's yes. In other words, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I completely get that. I completely understand that. I mean, I had the exact same thing. I mean, I was um, reading about Rebecca Sugar and it said in Wikipedia, non-binary woman. I was just so confused. And I hovered over those terms and there was no Wikipedia article for non-binary woman. And I mean, the more I thought about it, I guess, the more that I realized that I hadn't really critically engaged with this concept of gender. I mean, obviously, I've always been aware and I've um, done, I guess, some small degrees of, of commentary and advocacy in this space that, yes, sex and gender are different. You know, we recognize that. But I guess when it really came down to applying it to myself, I thought I've never really grappled with these different aspects of gender, gender identity, gender expression, gender roles. And I never really thought about um, what that meant until I came across this term. And, and with lockdown as well, I saw um, this tweet a while ago about um, how the, the number of people really coming to terms with um, gender and other things during lockdown kind of illustrates how inseparable um, our ordinary day-to-day -day life is from a sort of performative nature of gender. And I guess, um, you know, I've always gone out, people have referred to me as a man and I express myself as a man. I've been happy with it. I've just never thought about really what that meant. Mm, yeah. Um, and we'll talk a bit about, um, how do you pronounce it? Is it a motto? normativity I, mean, I believe it's amateur normativity, amateur normativity. About okay i mean well you know words are made up um uh, they all? <laughs> honestly um well i mean we'll talk a bit more about oh, what you just said it literally <laughs> i literally forgot um i mean we'll talk about we'll talk a bit more about this later but like um when you were talking about like um coming to terms with um aromantic and asexual identity and like always that just being the norm for you, but then coming across these terms and like figuring that out and everything. Did you ever feel like this pressure from like societally or maybe from other forces um, that there's this, you know, there's this enforced norm of romance and of, I guess, sex and like hyper forms of those? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really great, great question that, um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of discussion about these sort of topics that we often don't necessarily think about that much. I mean, you know, going back to where I was in high school, I mean, my personal experience was that, you know, I didn't really concern um, myself with that. You know, that wasn't something that interested me. If that was a topic of conversation, I just zone out. You know, I was interested in my friends and my hobbies and my studies, and that was that. But, you know, re reflecting um, on, you know, the the things that happen in society and the sort of um, uh, beliefs and values that I'm sometimes expressed and that we, we don't engage with critically. I do think that there is a strong sense there. And, you know, as I've become you know, older and older and I've gotten you know, increasingly more phone calls from my grandma wondering when I'm going to get a girlfriend, I think, yeah, this is absolutely something that's sort of reasonably pervasive throughout our society and something that I think is worth 
reflecting on. So I think, um, I guess, in terms of social expectations, we often, without thinking about it, just um, do consider love, sex, romance to be this important key part of life that you sort of, um, you know, part of being human. And if you don't have that, then, then something um, is missing. And um, I guess before we go on, that, that's really what the term amatonormativity means. Amato meaning romance, um, as in the term amorous, and normativity meaning that we just sort of think that that is the norm and any deviation from that is, is sort of, you know, a bit questionable. Um, I find this comes up in all sorts of um, settings. So I, I've mentioned, I've talked about my family and family really is, is such a big part of Asian culture. And traditionally, you know, the view of the ideal, perfect, mythical sort of Asian family is what's referred to as four generations under one roof. So, you know, you have um, the grandparents, the parents, the children, and they have children themselves and they're all um, living together, um, you know, bringing other people into their family, expanding their family and so on. And so, you know, while... I personally, I suppose I've been able to brush that off. It is something that um, is continually expressed in those circles. And, you know, for, for other people, absolutely, it's something that that's a challenge. Um, outside of my family, I see this all the time in, in society as well. Um, we use the term starting a family to refer to having children. And, you know, why is that? For one thing, you know, why can't you start a family you know, does that imply that you can't start a family if you don't want children or if for whatever reason you can't have children? Is your family less because of that? Um, why does your family have to be shaped by romantic relationships and these things? Many people regard pets as part of their family, for example. And this yeah. actually came up as a medical student. I mean, I follow this discourse. Um, very recently, the new president of the Royal Australasian College of General Practitioners was elected, Dr. Karen Price. And she believes that um, we should rename general practitioners to, quote, family physicians. You know, uh. and in some sense, they work in family medicine. But, you know, I think we as a society have understood that, you know, this does create some sort of tension with people who don't want a you know, quote unquote family in the traditional sense. Does that mean you can't see a GP, mm. for example, mm. um, or that they're yeah. being ignored by the GP? Otherwise, you know, all of, all of the time we, we see, I guess, sex in the media, relationships in society, and they form such an um, important part of our collective consciousness. I think in terms of pop music, it's been remarked that most if not all of the pop songs that are popular out there are about love romance in some respect the happy songs are about being in love chasing the person you love you know having sex how great is that the sad songs even when they're not about love they're about breaking up or unrequited love um pervasive in shakespeare it, it's um such a big part of it and you know this is something that i never really thought about but i've never been particularly interested in pop music i always found myself and more attracted to things like musical theatre. I've enjoyed the story of that and the um, much wider range of things that they talk about. And like I said, I've never thought about why that may be. Maybe it's just my friends are into that too, but maybe it's also part of this thing that all, if all the pop music is about sex and romance and I'm not particularly interested in that, maybe that's why I've turned to alternative music. Mm. You know, we... we Definitely. You know, it's this... It's, 
um, this thing that, you know, sex is just part of being a man or a woman. You know, you were a child, you were a boy or a girl, but then you had, you started having romantic relationships and you had sex and that was what made you a man. That's what being a man mm. or a woman was about. You know, that's, you know, something yeah. that everyone should sort of aspire to. And if you're not, you're a virgin. And we use that as an insult, right? Yeah. And people often uncritically just use that as an insult to um, denigrate the people they're talking about. But what's, what's the implication? What's the implication of that? Yeah. Um, even um, in the law, in, in, in something that, that should be, we think, objective and fair, um, even in the law, the, the notion of a romantic or sexual relationship has been elevated above that of many other relationships. If you're um, married, for example, you get tax concessions. There's implications for inheritance, um, implications for what happens um, if you're medically unwell and need someone to make a um, decision for you. Um, you know, why is that the case that something like this, that many people, um, for example, um, previously people in, for example, homosexual relationships who weren't able to be recognized under the law, their relationships were viewed by the law as lesser simply because it didn't conform to those social expectations. It had implications for, um, people in same sex uh, relationships who needed to fill out all kinds of legal gobbledygook, you know, powers of attorney just to ensure that they had the same level of um, protections and um, recognition available under the law to other couples that we just sort of didn't think about. And so I guess this sort of amateur it's not damaging only to people who are asexual and aromantic, but it's when we apply that uncritically, it's something that has implications for everyone, really. Mm, definitely. Lots of you 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 have this thing when you talk where you just drop lots of beautiful gems, Lee. I love it. Um, there's like it's so interesting um, what you mentioned about like pop music as well because that's been something because um, like I'm a music major and I'm like a composition major and I'm hoping to like create music um, for my career um, and you know I started very much being within a classical orchestral realm. But three years later now, I'm wanting to do like pop, dance, electronic music. Um, but it has been something that I've been thinking about where how in order for it to be a lot, you know, successful pop music is, as you said, it's so much about love, relationships, sex. Um, and yeah, totally. How it, it like that like the positive sides of that and the negative sides of that. And like, I'm, I, I hope this doesn't come off as like a, a plug, but like, um, like I'm writing like an album at the moment and it's like, it's a pop album, pop dance album. And it's in many ways going against that um, because it's not really like a breakup album, but it's like an album that explores my own finding of like self-worth. But even within that, I guess, breaking away from the norm, this, I still have, it's still, I guess, presented in a way that still conforms somewhat to that, um, the traditional elements of pop in that, you know, I have songs about sex, I have songs about falling in love, but there might be songs that are like aware of that and like aware of the emphasis that I'm placing on that, um, and, you know, by the, because the album goes chronologically, by the end of the album, I have a song that's called I'm Complete, where it's like, you know, I, I 
complete without a man, I'm complete without a partner, blah, 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 blah et cetera. Um, and so, but even then, even to get to that place, I'm still fra- framing it within um, that really interesting, I guess, traditional framework of like, yeah, um, it's about like sex and love and romance. And so, so it's very interesting. Um, and also totally agree. I mean, just musical theater on it's just by itself is just amazing anyway. So <laughs> totally feel that. Um, yeah. And... Musical theater is great. More people should be into it. Mm. That's, that's the takeaway from the podcast. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> no, yeah, um, coming. That's the end. But yeah. no, look, I totally get that about pop music and I understand why it's so pervasive. You know, it's part of a great many people's experiences and it's part of a great many people's lives. You know, when pop music is coming, when music really in general, I hope is coming from the heart and trying to reach other people, that is a common experience for many other people. So I think it's fantastic that there is music about that and people can find bits of themselves in that but you know as as you've mentioned you know is it the only thing that's worth singing about i don't think so there are so many other parts of being a person and leading your life that other people are related to important milestones difficult challenges that people go through and i am at the same time you know glad that we're starting to engage more critically with that and there are you know artists out there who are making more music about those other things that are also really important in life Mm. Definitely. Um, it's it definitely like for me with the problem seems to be in the over, yeah, the overemphasis in the, those kinds of songs. Um, and yeah, it's just not allowing room, although like more rooms opening up now, but like, you know, it, there hasn't been much room for like other kinds of, or at least that's not uplifted. I don't know. It, I think in the same mm. way, um, it's not celebrated as much in the same way. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. Um, and it's, and you also brought up, um, earlier about the, like the, like Asian families, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and like how, cause that's such an interesting, cause like, um, yeah, like my mom's side's Chinese. And so we might not have the, like the, for generations under one roof thing but we have like a lot of like like we meet like usually like once a month for like someone's birthday and have like a big family dinner like all these big like really centered around family and like um whenever like one of my cousins would be dating someone they'd bring them along and it kind of be like it's it's interesting it's kind of i don't i don't know that it that does feel like this um pressure to like build the family and kind of, I guess, procreate or like just to like um, extend the, um, ex- just extend the family and stuff. And it's, it's interesting. And um, at least I probably can't speak to it from um, an aromantic or asexual point of view, but at least in terms of like um, being queer as well, I feel like there's, there's also an element of like heteronormativity in that and how it's, you know, part of that expectation, part of that tradition is also it being a heterosexual relationship, um, you know, and usually as well, cisnormative, you know, a man with a penis and a woman with a vagina and like, you know, um, and so it's, you know, I've definitely been at like um, family like events and stuff where like 
um, one of my uncles has gone like, oh, so like um, when you like, yeah, like when you're going to bring a girlfriend or like when you, you know, how's that going for you? Or like, even like, I remember, I can't remember what the context was, but I think there was, I don't know, it was something about like how I'm like not paying attention in school or something like that. And then one of my uncles was like, oh no, he's just off studying the female form. And I was just like, what an <laughs> odd thing to, you know, it's so, but like this, like, I hesitate to use obsession, but this kind of like, really em- yeah this emphasis on like um this kind of forced i guess um pr- like pressure on like um conforming to this hyper uh, hyper romantic or like um or like amato normative um yeah amato normative exactly amateur, yeah exactly. um and then as a part of that um pillars of like heterosexuality and also uh, heteronormativity and like cisnormativity as well it's 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 interesting um you know um and it it's not i i don't feel like my family would be like um well i, I don't know i've only come out to like a few select members like but like i don't feel like they would i don't know execute me for like bringing a <laughs> bringing a guy to like a family event but it would definitely um that I, there's this like underlying like pressure to like kind of conform to that. And it's, it's, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Look, I think that's exactly right. I think you've, you've really identified a lot of things that many people, I mean, not only, you know, this isn't exclusive to Asian families by um, any stretch of the imagination. It's something that a lot of people can relate to. And I guess this sort of family setting and what you said, this pressure to build and expand your family um, is, is really um, got a lot of amateur cis-normativity, heteronormativity baked into the concept mm. that um, often, I guess, we feel that um, hasn't been critically engaged with. I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I can only speak from my um, perspective and my experience with my own Asian family, but you know, there's, there's this idea that, that, you know, their traditional view of family was, you know, as, as a man, your responsibility was to, you know, court a woman from some other family and then bring them into your family. They would come and live with your family in your sort of um, family home and have the four generations under one roof. And you would have, you know, as you know, the male son of the family, you would bear children and continue the family name. You know, um, this is something that, you know, it's not only, I mean, damaging to the the obvious populations, but it's something that, um, you know, contributes to a poor experience by other people as well. My own mother um, and father, you know, they, they've had issues with this. Um, for example, in, in China, um, we have uh, a thing called the Jia Pu. It's basically like a, a sort of a sort of family tree, a book, a genealogy book that um, records all the previous generations and it's a big source of history and I guess family um, knowledge. But because of the traditions in which it originated, it essentially only records the male members of the family. So you know, it's that's the male responsibility to pass on the family name, and um, my that's my um, uh, grandmother was an only child so there were no male siblings to carry on that family name and that was you know at a sort of um very challenging thing to work through i mean that essentially means that the lee family name um had ended 
in that generation with my grandmother. And so we, there were a lot of hoops to jump through to maybe try and get onto someone else's example. But because of this sort of heteronormativity, cis-normativity, amatonormativity, and I guess the, the remains of the patriarchal origins of that, that's something that has been a continued, I guess, um, simmering source of angst within that family. And I think, um, you know, the more that we critically engage with these kinds of ideas, the more that we can make um, life better for everyone. Definitely, definitely. And you talked about so wonderfully how it's all like linked. It's all, it's all linked, you know, the patriarchy, the amateur normativity, the, all of it, it's all linked. And I mean, even going back to what you were talking about before about, um, and I do want to come back to this like um, virgin being used as an insult thing. Cause I think that's a um, mm. really, oh, if I say interesting one more time, but like, it's interesting. It's complex. <laughs> and it's also like, um, but yeah, it's worth talking about more, but um, about how having, I guess, engaging in romance, but more uh, explicitly having sex, you know, makes you a man and makes you a woman, but in different ways and how the patriarchy plays into that and how, you know, for men, it's like this thing that you conquer is this thing that you, you know, you're, you're like a champion. You're like a war hero. It's like this weird thing. But then for a woman, um, it's like, she's become complete. She's um, fulfilled, you know? Um, And then I guess to an excess, um, she's, you know, slut shamed or she's all of these, but then, you know, again, like um, she's called like a virgin and stuff. And, you know, men too, um, potentially to a different extent or in a different way. Um, but, you know, it's this, this like hyper, um, I don't know, like critique of like, um, just like almost like weaponizing the, um, whether or not you've had sex and, in that placing a lot of um, mm. oomph onto something that's really just, you know, it's a part of a lot of people's lives, but it's also not. And it's just another thing, you know? Um, yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Right. I think, um, uh, I guess it, it is one of those issues. I mean, it's, it's kind of bizarre and it speaks to some sort of um, structural kinds of sexism that are the present within our, our society and the things that we say. I mean, if a woman doesn't have sex, she's a prude. But if she has too much sex, then she's a slut. I mean, what's going on there? Mm. Um, you know, the, the sort of focus on, on this and the, the use of, I mean, sex, I mean, for sort of understandable reasons, but the use of sex is uh, if you want to insult someone. I mean, um, Ben Shapiro, I'm, I'm very much no fan of Ben Shapiro, but, you know, he's posted things on Twitter and the response has been to say, well, Ben Shapiro um, clearly can't uh, give good sex to his partner. And, you know, we've sort of used that to just discredit his views. And obviously his views do need discrediting. But yeah, it's interesting but for, how different, yeah, yeah. for different reasons. It's interesting yeah. how we sort of latched onto that in particular uh, to sort of bring yeah. him down. Yeah, and rather and, you know, than having like a more like serious conversation about like, well, why don't, I mean, Twitter's not really the place for this, but like, um, you know, I feel like there's more nuanced conversation about like socialization and how like uh, men are, you know, taught to 
not really give pleasure, but to take it, you know. Um, mm, mm. But then rather than that, it's just, you know, you know, he can't pleasure his wife and that's, you know, that's fun. And that's it, you know. Yeah. And that that's funny. And so yeah. we don't need to engage anymore with what he's saying. Yeah. And I think, I think, I mean, I can't speak as to the experience of women, but I mean, for men, um, like I touched on before, there's this idea that, you know, once you've, the word you said, quote unquote, conquered, once you've conquered, then you've become a man, you know, that's the, um, that's, that's what separates a man from a child. And, you know, you know, the, the idea that sort of men are these beasts who are led around by their penises and they, that's all they think about. They want mm. sex. That's all they think about. Yeah. And like a it, compass sort of, just leading them. <laughs> leading yeah. you from one conquest to the yeah. other. I think, I mean, for one thing, that's, that's quite damaging to men, right? I mean, what if you, you, what if you have aspirations that don't just involve sex? What if you, um, you know, what if you want to be a nurse or what if you want to work in early childcare? There's always these sorts of things that are floating around your um, other people's heads about um, men and sex. And in terms of, I guess, bringing it a little bit back to an asexual representation, mm. there's, you know, it's become so ingrained that um, one of the um, responses that's sort of going around Reddit asexual communities at the moment is this thing, oh, oh, well, you don't look like you're asexual. Right. I mean, is it as if asexual people are supposed to look a particular way? But I guess where, where that's sort of coming from is, well, you know, everyone wants you know, sex. Men are there to, you know, have sex to quote unquote conquer and women are there to provide pleasure to the men. Um, you know, disgusting things to say that, that, that sort of get internalized. And so it's the point where, for example, you know, a woman doesn't want to have sex if she identifies as asexual, then the, um, the reaction by some people to say, oh, well, clearly um, that just mean, must mean that um, she's too ugly to be laid. And conversely for men, if a man says he doesn't want to have sex, if he identifies as asexual, there's a sort of idea that, well, well, he must be an incel, right? He must be you know, involuntarily celibate. He must not be able to get any women to have sex with him. He must be you know, this angsty dude locked up in his mother's basement complaining about how he hates women for all this. And that's just, um, I think, not at all true on either of those sides. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, uh, obviously, I'm, you know, not someone part of the community. So I think my perceptions um so like feel free to like clarify my perceptions but like from an outsider i've definitely witnessed like there seems to like with all things there seems to be like like a gay look or like a non-binary look you know Mm. um and with like ace like i feel like it's if you're asexual like an asexual man um just by being inherently asexual like you're like emasculated in a way you're like you're it's like that aspect of being a man is retracted in the traditional sense because mm. you're not hypermasculine and hypermasculine, um, I guess, um, consisting of being hypersexual. And, you know, because of that, you don't get to, you have to be like a, like a soft, you know, toned down kind of um, boy spelt in lowercase letters, B-O-I, you know, like it's, I don't know, I, at least that's my perception of like how, like the yeah the emasculation and kind of dehumanization of like um asexual people and like the stereotypes um that uh 
put onto men and then taken away if you're not, you know, if you don't fit into that. Um, yeah, look, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I, I think so to, to some extent. I mean, I'm surrounded by supportive, nice people and I, you know, in my personal experience, they've been and nothing but very understanding and accepting of that. But, you know, I, I think that there very much is this, you know, this, this goes right down to our ideas of gender norms and gender roles. I mean, we have this idea of men that have got to be hyper-masculine, they've got to be sex beasts, they've got to work out all the time, you know, they've got to be kind of dumb, but we sort of like them for that. Um, you know, they, they've got to be constantly thinking about the women. And, you know, the idea that, well, you know, if you're not one of those things, then you're, sort of, you're not masculine in that respect. We, um, like you said, um, you're not a man. You're sort of a bit of a woman in that respect. I think, um, you know, that, that doesn't just happen to asexual people, for example. That happens to other people um, in the LGBTQIA plus community as well. You know, if you don't fit our box of what a man is, then... Um, we're going to lump you in the other box. You know, you're, you're mm. less of a man because of that. And um, yeah. in terms of what that means for people who are asexual, I mean, I think it does play into a lot of misconceptions and stigma that um, some people um, have, whether that's um, something that they explicitly believe or something that maybe they've just internalised and haven't um, really critically engaged with. Um, there are some, you know... Um, psychological research, statistical research that shows that um, people of all backgrounds, um, whether they're straight or not, whether they're LGBTQIA plus or not, are more likely to perceive people as who are asexual as sort of um, cold or animalistic, you know, in the sense that, oh, well, you know, if sex is part of the human experience, if romance is part of, you know, an innate necessary part of the human experience, you know, if you can't love, then what sort of human are you? You must be cold and animalistic. But um, on the other hand, there's also um, this, the other view that people who are asexual must be immature. You know, you're just a uh, you know, boy yet. Um, you haven't um, found your manhood. You haven't crossed that line from being a boy to being a man. And, you know, it all, I think, to a large extent, comes down to um, social expectations about what it means to be in these roles and social expectations about what it means to be a man. Yeah. Um, do you feel like, I mean, not that there is a plethora of representation in the media, but do you feel like, um, the representation that there is plays a role, um, in, I guess, um, putting out some of these, um, stereotypes or like stigma surrounding, um, ace people? I think rep representation is a really great question and it's something that is, I think, very much a contemporary issue um, in the community. I think, um, I guess it's a bit of historical background and the asexual community hasn't been that well established for particularly long. One of the largest, I guess, um, awareness groups around that called um, AVEN uh, was only founded in 2001 and while there has been some research I guess academically going on for longer than that it, it really hasn't um, come to the forefront um, until pretty recently. So in, in some sense I mean we've had representation for some time. Sherlock Holmes was um, portrayed um, by the author as someone who was you know sort of uh, quote-unquote I guess immune to the pleasures of the flesh right so Sherlock Holmes, you know, had this one track mind so he could be, you know, this master investigator and he wasn't going to be um, 
it was sort of going to be the anti-James Bond. He wasn't going to be concerned about all that stuff. But, you know, that's not particularly great representation because that's the sort of aspect that's been tacked onto his character to sort of pursue a narrative purpose um, rather than something that's come out of a desire for good representation. Historically, I guess the active representation of asexual people has not been very good. Um, uh, Tom, uh, Thomas, in, in his episode, touched on some of this. But, um, for example, there was an episode of House, uh, which came out earlier this century, which featured a couple who identified as asexual. And the outcome of that episode was that actually there was a hormonal problem. I think the man had a tumour that resulted in him being asexual. Also, he wasn't actually asexual. He had a medical condition that resulted in that. I don't understand why they did that. It's house, it's a medical drama. There's got to be something weird and wacky and medical at the end of it. And the writers had the intention of raising awareness, but unfortunately the, the end result of that wasn't very good. I'm glad to say though that in recent times we are getting more representation in the media that is positive, accurate representation. Um, I spoke about Steven Universe right at the very beginning and um, there is one character, uh, Peridot, in Steven Universe, um, who is unfortunately not canonically described as asexual, but is regarded uh, by the community, has been confirmed by some uh, of the writers and in um, secondary materials, shown um, to be asexual, and that's that's been yeah, pretty good. Um, SpongeBob has been um, described by his uh, creator as asexual. And in recent times, there have been explicitly uh, explicit portrayals of asexual characters. So Netflix's Bojack Horseman, for example, had one of the main characters um, go on quite a um, detailed uh, emotional journey about um, coming, you know, finding themselves to be as asexual, uh, coming to terms with that and their journey with that. And it's um, uh, been uh, regarded as quite a good source of representation. And recently, again, and Netflix, Netflix really punching above their weight here, um, Sex Education, which, you know, it's a show about angsty, horny teens. You know, you wouldn't necessarily expect to find ace representation in there. But um, in one of the recent episodes, um, there was um, you know, an exploration of character who is asexual. It was very much a, a B plot. I didn't get a lot of screen time, unfortunately. But what they did get um, was very good. And so I guess this, this is part of the benefit of representation in um, getting the, an understanding of, you know, this is a thing that exists, this is what it means out there into the general public instead of these sort of outdated, incorrect um, uh, views that perpetuate um, sort of stigma. Mm, definitely. Um, going back to... Well, firstly, I, I haven't seen a lot of... Um, things that you've referenced, but I, um, I love sex education. Um, and that, yeah, that episode in season two, it, I, I would have liked it to be dialed up more, but like the, the, like the scene with Jean in the, in her, I guess her office, um, that I thought that was obviously as someone who's not part of the community, but I thought that was mm. a pretty good scene. Um, exactly right. I think, I think we, we share that view. It was quite a emotive and powerful scene. And of course, um, that character, didn't get very much screen time. But like I said, what, what was there was good. And I think our hope is that maybe that character will continue to be um, expanded and developed like some of the other characters um, have been in, in that show. Mm, definitely. Um, it, you uh, brought up the, I guess, the idea of, um, yeah, like harmful representation. And 
um, oftentimes I feel like uh, there's a lot of discourse about like whether there has to be a reason why a character is um, asexual or aromantic or, you know, usually like other in uh, another sense, queer or LGBT in any um, capacity, I guess. I definitely feel as, as a, um, like aspiring writer myself, it's definitely something I've been thinking about. And um, I feel like it's, you know, complex and nuanced. And I think, um, but it's also in terms of being queer and um, like homosexual characters. Um, it's, it's, I feel like a lot of the time narratives, um, including homosexual characters revolve around um, them getting a relationship and, you know, and so I feel like that's quite a harmful, um, I guess that's a harmful thing because then what does that say to, you know, young uh, queer kids who are watching this? It says that, you know, in order for you to exist, in order to have a person like you exist, you have to be in pursuit of a relationship. You have to be, you know, you have to, you know, bullying sucks and like life is shit, but then there'll be this like magical boyfriend who will come over and like make everything happy. And then it's, I don't know, at least that's what I've like witnessed. And it's, it's weird because I feel like if we just, you know, I mean, the gay agenda and all, but like, if we just made more characters <laughs> LGBT plus because it just happened and it has, it has no bearing, like they can have like episodes where they touch on like, you know, maybe their transition or like, I don't know, like stuff like that. But like if they just had more characters be LGBT plus in any capacity, I feel like it's for like no reason. I feel like that's just, it opens the door of possibility for what, people can be and you know it doesn't have to just be um yeah um and then you know that touches back to what we were talking about um just you know earlier about like how you know this emphasis on like romantic relationships as well it's um yeah i don't know that's just something i've been thinking about yeah look that's yeah i mean that's that's really great thoughts i mean i'm not a particularly artsy person. Um, I don't really have the answer to that question. I think it's it's really difficult. But then again, writing is really difficult and creating strong and compelling characters is really difficult. I think if you apply the same thoughts, the same processes that you do to creating strong, compelling characters in other senses, then you know the same should apply to um, whether you're, you're creating um, you know, LGBTQIA plus characters. I think as you said, it's good in a general sense to have representation, but I mean, not just, you know, tacking that label on someone for no reason um, or, or, you know, perhaps not no reason, but even worse, I guess, um, using that as a plot point and nothing else. I mm. think um, if, you know, your characters, are, you can create compelling three-dimensional characters who are asexual or gay or LGBTQIA plus in other ways and if you're a writer that's hopefully what you should be doing mm, definitely um and i mean I, I feel like a lot of representation representation that we do get even if it's like great it's always centered around like coming out or like the the, the initial stages um and that, like even with that sex education scene it was um about a character coming to terms with it so i like i 100 percent, 1000 percent agree that it would I would so love to see that character like progress and like 
have more like narratives outside of just the realization because I feel like then that too um, opens up the possibilities of like, you know, L- LGBT plus people we don't just like realize that we're LGBT plus and then just kind of die. Like we, we have like full <laughs> lives that like happen, you know, um, and that have multiple different things. You know, we have all the st- same storylines, you know, as non LGBT plus people. And so why wouldn't, you know, um, but yeah. Yeah. No, look, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think, you know, bringing it back to that sex education example, it would be really, really great um, if that character could have more development. I mean, in in the setting of, you know, if you're writing a novel or show or whatever, and there's a character who, for example, is gay and is going to be coming out, I think, you know, um, if you want to achieve good representation, the reason for that should not be, well, you know, I want to appear progressive and so I'm going to have a storyline about someone coming out. I think where that should come from is, you know, I've created a really compelling uh, three-dimensional strong character who happens to be gay and I think the audience is invested in this character. Gay people exist in our world and they exist in the world that I've created, you know, as strong characters. And because of having done that, because coming out was an important part of this character's life, that audiences are invested in this character, and because there are other things that um, are important in this character's life that I'm also going to um, explore, that's why I'm putting this out there. Because I guess because the character drives um, how you explore them. You're not using the character as just, you know, uh, sort of set window dressing for you know, ticking boxes. Mm, that's such a good way to put it. Um, I mean, this isn't an, an example of... Um, a good ace um, representation, but um, the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, you know, it introduced, it has the character Daryl who, like he comes out as bisexual early on and then he, like he starts, a lot of the focus is on his relationships and so like he dates a character called White Josh um, because he's, he's like the, he's like one of the best friends of like the main romantic lead Josh, but he's just, um, who's Asian, but then he's white. So it's, it's a reversal of that. I don't know. Um, and then some people call him like white because they think it's his first name. Um, but anyway, that's, mm-hmm. um, so like he's um, white Josh. And then, um, but then like, and then later he gets with someone else, but I can't remember, but she played um, Mindy St. Clair in The Good Place. I know. All right. Um, um, anyway, um, but so like it, there's like focus on like the relationships, but then there's also like focus on like his friendship with like, uh, like his friendships and like, falling outs and stuff and like um being the owner of his firm and like um also like um later on like wanting to like he's, he was already a father but wanting to um uh get like a surrogate and like have another child um and being like a single parent as well and so there's like all these like great things um although i hesitate to bring up crazy ex-girlfriend because there is a line in one of the because it's a musical comedy there is a line in one of the songs where it's um they talk um it's a song about how rebecca the main character she's so focused on romantic love um that she you know she she decides you know what i'm done with it i'm gonna essentially like be celibate um or like abstain from like sex and also romance um and there's the song um without love you can save the world um and then they they kind of shout it's an asexual utopia which 
is a bit which kind of I think conflates um, mm. celibacy with being asexual, which is a bit harmful. But I mean, that's something to talk about too. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, otherwise, Daryl, great rep in Crazy Ex Girlfriend. Um, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, yeah. the key point is does this character have a character mm. other than, you know, being gay, bisexual, asexual, or whatever? Yeah. If the answer is yes, then, you know. Then you're doing pretty well, probably. Doing, yeah. Um, maybe, you know, just touch on what you said there, maybe it would be a good time to briefly canvas some some definitions around this, like mm. what is asexual versus celibate and so on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if you're listening, if you haven't already checked out um, Thomas's episode about this, he's done a great job also of exploring this in more detail and from his perspective as well. So, of course, I recommend that. But I guess um, just as a brief sort of topic, um, you know, what we talk about is the split attraction model. So, I mean, um, for example, people who are gay might be happy to say, well, I'm attracted to men. And we understand that that means, you know, you want to have sex with men, you want to start, you know, you want to be in a romantic relationship, go on dates and cuddle whatever um, with men. But because um, of, you know, within the asexual and aromantic um, communities, people may lack one or more of those specific types of attraction, we, we separate them out. So the most relevant are sexual attraction. I want to put my penis inside this person specifically, um, or, you know, the um, equivalent for anyone else um, versus romantic attraction, which is that sort of, you know, oh, you make my world light up, the lights go out when you leave. I, you know, I want to be with you. I want to go on a date with you and so on. There's a sort of um, aesthetic attraction, which may be separate from those altogether, would say, you know, this person is, looks good. I appreciate their body. Um, a sort of uh, sensual attraction as well. And other forms of attraction, which, which Thomas also, also talks about in, in more detail. So if a person lacks, for example, sexual or romantic attraction, we say they are asexual or aromantic, respectively, in between having a sort of... Um, normal quote-unquote normal sense of sexual attraction versus having no sexual attraction there's also a spectrum which is the asexual spectrum or the you know a, a spec for example and um for someone who doesn't sit on that spectrum um uh, we might say that they're allosexual allo meaning other so they have sexual attraction to other people and i think i like you touched on um in terms of um your example this is different to celibacy. So celibacy, uh, for example, what religious figures might do is a voluntary act of not engaging in sexual behaviours. So again, um, as opposed to, I guess, being asexual, which is not a choice, or it's rather an orientation. So in that setting, that doesn't mean that asexual people might not have sex or engage in sexual behaviors. They might do that for a number of reasons for, I guess, um, biological hormonal reasons of release. They may do it to be closer with a um, romantic uh, partner. Of course, they may be pressured into it for other reasons. Um, so um, uh, libido or sex drive um, refers to, um, I guess the, the biological, physical aspect of you know, quote unquote being horny. So um, I guess what's going on with the body rather than what's happening in the mind. And then uh, finally, some things that um, Thomas didn't touch on, but you know maybe you will come across if you do more reading on this, is that um, um, people can be described as being sex faithful or indifferent or repulsed, depending, I guess, 
irrespective of their attraction, but I guess their personal, um, you know, um, would they be inclined to engage in sexual behaviours or is that something that repulses them? And this is sometimes contrasted with being sex positive or neutral or negative in terms of, I guess, their views on sex, sort of you know, social, uh, you know, sex in the media, you know, that sort of thing. Mm, definitely. So I guess how do, yeah, how do the relationships work? Like specifically if it's like um, an ace person and an allo person together in a relationship, yeah. is there, yeah, what's that like, I guess? Yeah, yeah, look, I think that's, that's a really important question. I mean, uh, myself being aromantic, I'm not interested in having romantic relationships and, and things like that. So, you know, personally, I'm not really that qualified to talk about this, but it is a really important issue increasingly. So, I mean, uh, for example, it may be someone who is asexual, who is seeking a relationship, or often uh, times um, people are often posting on asexual forums and the like, um, people who have been in committed relationships um, for many years, and then one of them has um, discovered that they've been asexual and come out about that. And, you know, how do you continue that relationship? It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a really tricky issue. Um, so as I mentioned before, um, someone who is asexual may still desire a romantic relationship if they're asexual but alloromantic, or it may be someone who's on the asexual spectrum who experiences sexual attraction um, under specific conditions um, or in a specific way. So I guess, you know, like I said, not super qualified to talk about that, but often, you know, what is the case is that um, it needs to be, uh, you know, um, discussion between the two, a bit of give and take, and to figure out um, what can work for those two people in that relationship. Obviously, um, one person may desire sex in that relationship, and the asexual person, look, it depends on what their libido and sex drive is, it depends on whether they're asexual or somewhere on the asexual spectrum, it depends if they're um, sex favorable or indifferent. Um, or repulsed, and all those sorts of things. I guess, you know, relationships are very difficult. There are often things that need to be negotiated and talked about, and um, it often comes up that this may be one of those things that, that needs to be talked about. Mm, definitely. Um, I mean, not to be like a white yoga woman, like a white woman doing yoga on Instagram, but, like, it's all about communication <laughs> and, like, all exactly. about that you know, you've got to have those peace negotiations and just like, you know, get it all out there um, and just really see where, if you can like build a bridge on that and like, um, yeah, 100%. Um, is there ever any, um, I know that like passing privilege in the community, um, I guess in the broader LGBT plus community is like um, a big thing that's like talked about is there um i'm just wondering if there's any like um yeah i guess like discourse about like uh passing privilege in terms of um these relationships or even just ace um and era people in general yeah yeah look i mean i'm glad that you've raised that because it is a um topic of, of current discussion um often in um, asexual communities so i mean in terms of passing privilege, I mean, 
you know, I know that you, you've talked about your own experience of this yourself in um, your solo episode of the podcast. Mm. And yes, I mean, it does exist really in terms of what we're talking about, that people who are um, asexual can generally speaking pass for someone who is straight. I mean, if you're not in, I mean, it depends on the romantic orientation, what your personal circumstances are, for example, but myself, I mean, I've never brought a man home. So it's just people can assume that I'm simply straight. They don't know that I'm asexual. It's not something that's really um, clearly visible. Um, and so, you know what, it, it is um, something that's worth talking about. People um, who are asexual often have the you know, quote unquote privilege of being able to, in some sense, turn off their aceness. They don't need to identify as ace and that you know, allows them to pass. But on the other hand, um, it is a sort of current topic of, of discussion of not really, you know, the term passing privilege, not really encapsulating the whole conversation. Because in some sense, I mean, I suppose it's a privilege and that not everyone is able to do that. But on the other hand, you know, what, what does it mean to be able to pass? It means that, I mean, at least for people who are asexual, it only means that you're able to pass if you don't identify as asexual, if you hide your identity um, and don't do that. And, um, you know, if you allow your identity to be erased, and that is um, a contentious issue at the moment in terms of referring to it as, as a privilege, you know, well, is it a privilege to be able to have your identity erased? And I think it, it is really important. It is a noteworthy distinction, but at the same time, it's not, you know, entirely a good thing. And just because, um, you know, some people do have passing privilege doesn't mean that there still isn't work to do in terms of, I guess, moving towards not requiring that privilege in the first place and being able to be more supportive and understanding generally. Mm, definitely. It's, it's a very, um, uh, I guess, like sticky, if you pun the euphemism <laughs> connotations, um, like, yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's a murky conversation. Um, but there's a lot of, I think, gray area. And I think, um, yeah, like obviously, um, thanks for the plug, Lee. Go check out my previous solo episode um, where <laughs> I talked good. a bit. Oh, thank you. Um, I talked a bit about my own experiences with passing privilege, um, specifically in terms of like being white passing, passing for cis, passing for um, like abled and stuff. And so um, it's, uh, I, I think, as I mentioned in the episode, like most people, get that I'm queer pretty much right off the bat but like in terms of like other um aspects um and it's you're absolutely right it's like there's um there's a sacrifice of your identity when you pat when you pass or when American there you pass um when you pass <laughs> um and it's you know that that what comes with that is oftentimes power in a sense but of, also the there's that relinquishing of your power or, and of being authentically yourself and so it's it's weird in that you kind of gain something but you lose something um yeah yeah and it's it's i think it just very much depends on like the situation depends on like all the factors and stuff but um yeah it's i i completely agree i think if we move away from and kind of begin to dismantle the the 
the expectation, the the assumption that everyone here is, you know, is allosexual or like uh, cishet or able-bodied, you know, in all these, if we begin to like take that away, then I think that that's, you know, that no, no longer really becomes an issue or like, I, I, at least I can't really imagine it being. Um, yeah, but it, it's an interesting, interest, interesting discourse. Very, very juicy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, it's a, it's a byproduct of discrimination. Um, if you face discrimination because of your identity, um, some people have the ability to pass as not being of that. And yeah, that's that's an ability that some people have and that some people don't. And it is a difference. And you know, there's all sorts of nuance there. But I guess the key point is that it doesn't mean that they're not discriminated against and that we have to remember that not everyone's experiences are the same and people can still experience discrimination, even if it's different to the discrimination that other people experience. Mm, totally. Um, are there, we've like mentioned a few, um, but like, are there any other like instances or like forms of stigma or discrimination or, I mean, even like misconceptions about um, any of things that we've talked about that you want to, talk a bit about more about or yeah i think that's an interesting topic because um i guess along related notions to that the idea of passing privilege um being asexual or aromantic often isn't as visible as um other minorities and um it often doesn't necessarily attract the same kind of hate or discrimination or stigma as others oftentimes it's about sort of not really knowing what it is or not having the right information. So among, I guess, um, uh, people, when they come out, one common response is, or, oh, you know, you, you need to go see a doctor, you know, could this be caused by hormones or, or some medical deficiency? And you know what? We don't really have a lot of research in this area. We don't have a lot of medical or psychological research about what it means to be ACE and how, how that, um, comes about. It's a pretty recent um, phenomenon that it's really gained traction in that sense. Um, but really, um, that's it's essentially untrue. As far as we know, it's not a hormonal issue, just in the same way that there are no hormones that make you turn gay. Uh, right? Mm. Um, I mean, th there are medical conditions, for example, a hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which, you know, I'm just going to talk about now because I'm a medical student and have to flex. For sure. um, but, you know, yeah. the key point about like a psychological or medical issue is that it, it causes you distress. It's not, it's not something that you identify with. If someone is coming up to you and say, I identify as asexual, this is me, this is how I feel in myself and I'm comfortable in my own skin, then, um, you know, by, by definition, they're not looking for a medical treatment. They're looking to be accepted for who they are. That, that's mm, key. I mean, another thing is, I guess, um, you know, the, the response to being asexual. Well, how do you, how, how can you know if you've never tried? How can you know that you don't want sex if you've never tried? I mean, you know, I've never hugged a cactus, but I'm pretty sure that I have no interest in mm. hugging a cactus. I don't think yeah. I need to try to know that. I mean, mm. when, when you look, when, when people are looking around them and seeing other people with these things and thinking, I'm not like that, um, you know, the people, you, you can understand what it is and decide that, you know, I'm not interested in that. So really that's the sort of um, 
the misconceptions, I guess, about not understanding. But, you know, unfortunately, very tragically, in, in some cases, it, it can result in things that are even more destructive than that. And um, that's the case, I guess, particularly with women who are asexual, but I mean, in asexual people generally, this idea, well, you know, how can you know if you haven't tried or, you know, it's a medical problem or this idea of, you know, you haven't met the right person yet, um, you know, I'm the right person, I will fix you. And this can lead to corrective rape or sexual assault, unfortunately. Um, you know, we've got some statistics that show that about 14% of people who are asexual have experienced rape or non-consensual sex, unfortunately, and just under half have experienced some form of sexual violence, um, which is higher than people who are straight um, non-aces. And that's really unfortunate and really tragic that it's had to be part of um, people's experience. I mean, it's, it's unacceptable and it's something that, you know, we're hoping that we can improve when people um, you know, as, as learn more about that and learn that that is not acceptable. Mm, definitely, 100%. Um, what you said about like the, the notion of like fixing um, asexuality or aromanticism, it's, um, and also like that goes hand in hand with like the medical field. And like, I feel like oftentimes like medicalizing um, like asexuality or aromanticism or even um, like, as you said, like, like in the past, like with like queerness as well, um, it, it's like, I can't really see, like, I just feel like oftentimes it's just for like eugenics purposes and it's just kind of like, okay, let's find out how, like, like let's find the gene in the body that like causes that and then let's get rid of that kind of, I feel like there isn't really a reason why you kind of need that. I don't know, at least for me personally, um, it feels like, um, finding the, the, the cause, you know, um, the solution to being, um, LGBT plus in any way. Um, I feel like that th there isn't really a purpose for that. You know, we just exist and we are, you know, and uh, we don't need to be fixed. Um, and then as you yeah. said, it, it can, you know, really, um, manifest in some really, really violent ways. And that's, um, really harmful. Um, yeah, yeah, no, very yeah. much. I think, I think you know, as a as a medical student, you know, how many times have I said that now? <laughs> but um, you know, look, I think, you know, we do have to have a balance. We can't ignore medical things. I mean, yes, some medical conditions can cause low libido. I mean, we have some research coming out that you know suggests that you know maybe there is an association with trauma and things like that. And you know, I don't think we you know we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Some people will have uh some people will have a cause for these things and it's something that they can be helped with but that doesn't mean that everyone who or even most people who are asexual are that way i think you know you have to you know appreciate what the limitations of medicine are it's not there to explain or fix everything and like once again if someone is coming to you and is healthy happy and fine in themselves then no they don't have a medical condition stop yeah definitely so i feel like there's not not perhaps like an elephant in the room but like like a a, a, a mouse-sized elephant i know i feel like there's um you know always these things but um like i like i've like consciously 
um, included like um, when I've said like LGBT plus community, that's been like inclusive um, of like asexual and aromantic people and stuff. But the, I, there has, I've definitely witnessed um, discourse slash war um, on social media about like mm. um, inclusion and exclusion of um, ace and aero people um, in the community. Um, if that's something you're comfortable talking about to whatever extent, um, I'd love your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Look, first of all, I think it's interesting that you talk about elephant in the room because elephant is one of the symbols that's sometimes used for asexual. But um, Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't look, know that. Yeah. Completely, um, wow. Is that a good symbol the, or bad symbol? Oh, it's it's um, a symbol that some people use. It's not one of the major okay. symbols, but I thought that was interesting. But no, okay. look, I'll look into. No, I was just of, I was just reading up in my my doctor my doctor doctor who no doctor what was it doctor Seuss and the does he use elephants a lot? Oh, th that joke just didn't land. Anyway, you <laughs> made anyway, no Horton. He's a who? Horton. He's a who? Is that yeah. that's an elephant, right? Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Potentially, Is I don't know. Yes. Yes. Oh my, yeah. that was a while ago, wasn't it? Oh, throwback. I, I mean, that, it that's it. Anyway. Yeah, that's it. I mean, asexual people are sometimes regarded as the elephant in the room. It's an elephant is, is oh, occasionally okay. a symbol. At least I've seen some people use it that way. Mm. But I mean, in terms of that elephant in the room, yeah, I mean, it is a tricky conversation. I guess the more you get into this, you can get very down in the dumps depending on where you want to go. So I don't want to go too deep into it. You know, want to stay positive. But... Um, there is um, some people, I mean, as, as I guess broadly speaking, most people who are asexual, according to surveys and so on, do identify as being LGBTQI+. Um, but interestingly, most of them don't typically engage with traditionally LGBTQI plus spaces and forums and things, which is an interesting kind of dichotomy. Thomas talked a little bit about this in, in his episode and his personal experiences around that. So I suggest, you know, um, uh, listening to that episode if you want more discussion of that. But sometimes where it stems from is, and, and this is why I guess the notion of passing privilege has become a little bit contentious in asexual circles is that, um, again, just because the discrimination that you experience is different doesn't mean that it isn't discrimination that we can't support each other. There are, um, um, while the vast majority in my experience of the LGBT plus community is very supportive of people of diverse sexualities, there are some people who become quite, um, you know, for very understandable reasons, who've experienced personally specific types of, of discrimination and who have identified that other people like asexual people, for example, haven't experienced um, the same kinds of discrimination and so have taken, um, you know, um, a more exclusionist view of that. And like I said, I understand where they're coming from. I truly believe that they're doing it with the best intentions from based on their own um, lived experience. Um, but, you know, um, it can be quite... Um, um, a destructive thing to hear to asexual people that you know you haven't been discriminated against enough or you haven't been discriminated against in the right way i think our view is that you know inclusion is not a race to see who was the most discriminated or a competition and something that's important to uh, understand is how to be allies for people with different experiences to our own and i think that's not only an important topic about asexual people but about the community in general um, the value of 
inclusivity and being allies for people who you know, may not necessarily share our particular experiences. Um, just to touch on one thing that's been raised in relation to this has been um, about defining um, sexual um, diversity and so on, not in terms of specific labels like LGBTQIA plus does, um, but there has been a move in some circles to introduce the term uh, gender, sexual and romantic minorities or GSRM, or sometimes the letters get mixed up in a different order to sort of, um, I guess, identify what it is about us and this group of people that, um, you know, enables or suggests that we should be um, allies to each other. Um, it's not a universally accepted term. There's some controversy uh, about that, but it, it's something, again, the term that I thought I'd bring up that you may come across if you do reading um, about this. Definitely. I thought, like, when I first saw it, I was like, is that like YouTube get ready with me or is that like Pokemon gold, silver <laughs> RM or something? But no, it, it, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a new Pokemon game. No. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Got to catch them all, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I definitely find like with like labels and stuff and like how we refer to like the community and like, cause uh, like LGBT plus like LGBT isn't, um, as inclusive as it can be, even LGBTQIA plus isn't because like the like why are we um, prioritizing some um, yeah, yeah. get like the letter, some get the plus, you know, um, and then even queer, there's like you know problems with that about like it not everyone wanting to reclaim that, and also like um, like at least from what I've heard, some um, heterosexual binary trans people don't feel que- like queer is kind of more on the sexual side of sexual orientation side of things rather than um like trans so like it, it's you know I, I don't know i feel like i don't know but it's it's hard and i i don't know um yeah i don't really have an answer or a solution but like it's it's interesting to consider um yeah yeah look it, it's it's a tricky topic and it's rooted i guess in in the history of um, you know where the community has come from, and you know in some sense labels are important to many people. So I guess um, you know personally, I think that the term you know, GSRM is um, one that can be put forward more. But I guess it's it's going to be a discussion that we're going to continue to be having, and it's something that we're just going to have to continue to figure out and try mm. and try and do. Yeah. So yeah, speaking of labels. Um, I I believe I asked Thomas this, um, but I, I'd love to know your like how you feel about your own um, experience using labels and like whether they fully fit you or whether there's a bit of fluidity. How yeah, just what's that like for you? Yeah, look, I think labels labels is an interesting topic. I mean, earlier in terms of um, the gender stuff, I said that the term that I would prefer to use is, is non-binary man. I think that's sufficiently vague yet specific enough to convey that. But I guess there are lots of um, labels within that, you know, agender, qua gender, um, all sorts of other things that, you know, I identify with in, in particular respects and I wouldn't um, be opposed to you know, using that label, but it's not the one that I, I've chosen to put forward first line. Um, but, you know, so I guess, 
I guess labels can't possibly capture everything about a person. You know, everyone is going to be different. Some one person who identifies as, for example, asexual is going to be different to another person who does. I know that my experience and the way that I identify is very different to Thomas's from um, two episodes ago, um, for example. So, you know, labels certainly can't be the be all and end all of everything. It's sort of a launching point. But at the same time, there is, I think, great value in the potential of, of having a label. I guess, um, you know, for me, like I said, um, you know, I've gone through most of my, you know, 20 years and so on, uh, having, you know, been okay with, in, I guess, in concept being asexual, but never having used the term or thought much about the term. And for me, that, that wasn't really an issue. But since using the term, and I guess, um, specifically, I guess, joining and um, looking at some of these communities, it is really, I think, empowering to see other people who use the same label as you. And while that doesn't mean that everything's exactly the same, but to be able to, I guess, feel a connection to someone who feels the same way as you, you know, in this particular respect, um, you know, it's, it's empowering to know that they're, you know, to know really uh, in a practical um, sense that there are other people like you and that what you are is normal and acceptable. Um, it provides support for other people um, if they're questioning or coming out or if they've got questions or, for example, in those um, ace uh, allo relationships, if there are things that they'd like input on, it provides them a space to do that. And um, it's also a source of um, great memes. There are, there are many memes within the Reddit asexual community. Um, dragons, garlic bread and cake come to mind. You know, sex, no, mm. I don't want that. Just give me some garlic bread. And, I, you know, I'm being a bit you know, facetious about that. But I think what it symbolises is a real sense of community. You know, this is something that I'm part of. And I think for many people that is something that's um, really valuable and very helpful. Mm. At the same time, you know, for me personally, I mean, even at the time that I first... Um, use the term asexual, you know, it was something that I grappled with. I mean, you know, I've, I had at this point, I guess, sort of internalized a little bit of doubt about, you know, well, how can you, if you, you know, maybe you've just not met the right person. Is that, you know, how can you be so confident about this label? And, um, you know, in the end, um, I think it's important to emphasize the messages that a label isn't a death sentence, you know, to put it that way. It's not something that you have to stick on yourself and live with forever. It's just something that, you know, at this particular point in time, these words are the words that best describe me right now. And, you know, in the future, that may change. In the future, I may find that different words um, uh, express my identity better. But that doesn't mean that at this moment, these aren't the words that best describe me. And that's acceptable. That's fantastic. And you should be able to use those labels. Mm, totally. Um, completely agree. Um, just quickly, I, I mean, how many times am I going to mention that I'm a composer who's writing an album? But like one of <laughs> one of the songs that I I'm writing at the moment um, with one of my friends is, it's, uh, I don't know what I'll call it, but like the like the main chorus is like, um, th this song's about a kiwi, but uh, this song's about kiwis, but it's actually about sex, and it's just like talking about how, like bringing it back to like pop um, pop culture and pop songs like there's so many pop songs that like use like fruit or like food, but then are actually about sex, like cake by the ocean, watermelon, sugar. Mm -hmm. um, I think like Katy Perry has a song called like birthday, or, like birthday cake or something. Uh, so it's interesting that um, 
you brought up. I mean, I, I'm not obviously familiar with those um, memes, <laughs> but um, I, I don't know if there's an aspect of reclamation of that, or maybe that's just my brain drawing comparisons. But um, yeah, that just made me think of that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's a really interesting comparison to draw. I think um, it's probably not the, the main thing on people's minds. You know, cake is just great. We had a great time when, um, you know, disc- when those, those Twitter memes about discovering random things were actually a cake. Oh, yes. But, you know, it is interesting. You know, Cake by the Ocean and songs like that have been brought up. You know, people just you know, not realising that it was about sex until they really looked, looked into it. And, you know, I think there is a... Um, I think there probably is a degree of, of reclamation in that. But again, it's just something that people can get around as a community. Mm, you know, yeah, not cake. exactly. Um, honestly, I, I feel like, not to be controversial, but I feel like the inclusion and exclusion should be like people who like cake and people who don't like cake. Because like people who don't like yeah, cake, there's something, there's something wrong with you. I got to say yeah, that. You have a medical condition. Gonna, you, need, you, no, need to, you need to go see a yeah, doctor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. Um, no um, but I, that's, I mean, community is so important and it's so like, yeah, for me, like, um, with labels, like on one hand, um, like putting less pressure on myself to be like, oh, I have to like tick a box with this label. You have, have to, um, you know, identify with the label to like, um, fulfill some outer, I don't know, purpose. But then, mm, mm. um, at the same time, when you find a label, you find a community and you, um, that gives greater introspection, gives greater insight into who you are and then interconnectivity with like others and stuff. And that's so beautiful. Um, and like even talking about like the, um, I'm not sure if it's, I don't, I don't know if the, if the nuclear family, family, family model is like Western inherently, but like the family model of like, um you know i mean in asian um families but also um as we said you know it's kind of mirrored in like other um cultural fam like cultures families um in general about like this pressure to like um expand and like to you know that real emphasis emphasis on family and like how amato amato normativity is like plays a part in that um like you know i i've really um, you know, there's that concept of the chosen family and like how um, community and like shared identity can kind of form that can help form your own fa- like your own family in many ways. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Particularly like if you don't have that for whatever reason, or um, you know, if that's been taken away from you, it's it's so it's so great. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's sort of touching on what we were talking about earlier with all starting a family business, you know. Mm. You don't have to start a family by marrying or having children. Your family is you know, whatever you want it to be. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it could be like just like friends or like whatever. Or like, yeah, as you mentioned, pets. I mean, I have a great family with my soft toys, you know. Um, Absolutely. I'm never going to procreate with any of them. <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, um, we're just we're we're a little cute little family um one one final question though um and i ask this of all my guests if you could give one piece of advice to someone who has just moved in on res um or is still you know getting to know the, the community um talk about community um the community here on res um what would that be 
you know, I guess this is colored by my own experience of coming to university and such, but I think the advice that I would give is that, you know, in, um, when you're in high school, it can be this very um, close knit and um, very small numbers of um, people with these very great expectations on you, not only in academic sense, but in a social sense, it's great pressure to conform. But, you know, really when you come to university, you're an adult, you're, um, you're among these thousands and thousands of other people, you know, it's a whole new world that's opened up and really the advice I give is um, who you are is just fine. Mm. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And it really is, you know, we're just another ant in an ant colony here at uni, you know, yeah. <laughs> lived. No. Um, yeah. In a good way. In a good way. In a good way. Um, yeah. In, in many ways, I kind of miss that aspect of uni um, with the pandemic, but yeah. Yeah. Hope, hopefully it'll be over. Mm. Can go back to just being ant. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's it for today's podcast episode. Thank you all for tuning in. And thank you so much, Lee. Uh, I feel like we've covered so much, so many great things here. Um, and I can't wait for listeners to listen to this because I feel like it's such a great conversation. Um, I, I really should take this out of my outro notes, but is there anything you want to plug? Like maybe it's an event or m- maybe you have like a social media that, you know, for your pet or something. I don't know, like anything like that. You don't have to, but <laughs> well, if you're interested, you can find me on Twitter. Just search Lee Yingtong Lee. I also probably will be writing a little bit about this on my blog. If you Google Yingtong Lee, it'll probably also come up. Nice, awesome. Um, well, yeah, make sure to tune in next fortnight where we'll be talking about another really important issue. Um, all right, I hope, you, I hope you all have a really great week. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye.